She's your favorite children's toy, polyamorous pocket, for any joy. <laughs> and they put the verse top in Never Stop Writing, Danette Smith. And you're listening to Verses, the podcast <laughs> where poets confront the ideas and the movement. Brought to you by the Poetry Foundation and Post Loudness. Hello, Danette Smith. Hey, Francis. <laughs> how you doing? I'm doing good. How's your, how's your, how are you doing? How's your heart? How's your brain? Uh, heart is good. Brain is late today. Brain you know? is late. Brain is late. Brain's feeling a little saggy. Just running like a uh, smooth 15 behind. Yeah, brain might even be in the DeLorean just heading back in time, <laughs> you know? Like brain, brain is all over the place. What is linear time today? What, yeah, is, what is linear time ever though? I know. Th- which is my excuse, as always for being late to meet you in the hotel lobby. Okay. okay. I apologize. Uh, can I ask you a question? Sure. Who taught you that? <laughs> Who taught you how to be late? Who did this to Who you? Who did this to you? <laughs> Do you come from a late family? Oh my God. I cannot believe you brought my family into this. And the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, that's not true. My mother, mm-hmm. love you, mom. You raised me. Thank you for everything. You wonderful, wonderful woman. She is late a chronically late <laughs> woman <laughs> strong beautiful immigrant woman who is constantly behind Dang. yeah okay. and she's always the last one to leave the house you oh know, like, when, like all of y'all are leaving someplace? we're all going into the like going into the car to like go to dinner or like church or whatever mm-hmm. like my dad knows that he has like a few minutes to like practice his swing in the driveway while my mom is turning off all the lights mm. in the house and and putting her body together word yeah mm-hmm. i come from a, a mixed background mm. okay <laughs> half of my family is very good with time and half yeah. of it is um doesn't believe in its authority word, yeah. I, word. what about you um uh, my fam is different too like i guess like in the nuclear fam right like my mom is like actually always early mm-hmm. right and like kind of like not in even in the good way oh right like, i remember you telling me about yeah this. yeah so like my mom's one of those people like you like say like oh like come over at four she's there at 345 yeah that's so stressful i, I had to tell her i i reached out oh. to tell her i was like yo i think i know you think you're being like kind uh-huh. and that's actually very rude right you know oh. <laughs> like she'll call me like i'll be there at four and I'd be like, do not come at 3.40 or 3.50 yeah. and expect me to have pants on and like yeah. run outside. Like, I'm going to be ready at 4. But then, like, you know, there's the other side of my family. Like, I have an aunt who is kind of like, you know, mom number two or three for me. She is perpetually late. Mm-hmm. Like, to the point like where— how late? Like, if we want to eat Thanksgiving dinner at 3.30, we tell her 1.30. Wow. Yeah. That's a hard sell too to be like we're eating dinner at one thirty, so you better get have here. you have you met old black people? <laughs> it's like my family is ninety five percent old black people. Then niggas were down to eat at eleven. <laughs> okay, breakfast was at three a.m. Lunch was at eight a.m. and dinner is at noon. Okay, like and then we are down for the night. Are you kidding me? The opposite of like the way Spanish people eat. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. Black people just eat three times quick in a row and then siesta all damn day. <laughs> I mean, but it's true that it's like um, old story. Time is tale as old as time. Tale as old as time, which is how old disagreement depending on your culture Mm -hmm. um, and where you come from. And that's not just about like your family's habits, but also spans like entire 
big culture. Yeah, you know? diaspora. Literally, black people, we have colored people time. Right. <laughs> black Which is like, people goes beyond national boundaries. Right. So many, right. Na- <laughs> so many black people are late that we decided to give it a term. You know? <laughs> right, right. And I, uh, we got a chance to think about time and how it interlinks us to all of our people and ourselves and our languages and so many things. We just got a master class with Chris Abani, um, who personally um, is like one of my favorite teachers that I ever had of all time. I'm just really excited for y'all to get a small taste um, or a big taste. You know, we, we got a long show um, for y'all with Chris Abani, um, poet, novelist, teacher, um, all the things, dancer, um, wearer of nice white shirts. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> um, Chris Abani is a novelist, poet, essayist, screenwriter, and playwright. Um, his most recent novel was The Secret History of Las Vegas, which came out in 2014. He's the author of seven books of poetry, the most recent of which was Sanctificum from Copper Canyon Press in 2010. Um, and he is a professor at Northwestern University. We are so excited to get into this conversation with Chris Abani, who will start us off by reading a poem. Flay. The point of a pen opens a hole into a soul's dereliction. This search for the right word bores through stone. Sunlight takes no measure of what is clung to. That way a man can place the half-dome of a tomato, slice into flesh, and cut an island of loss. Migrant punished by spice and the scent of cooking, you wake up on a cold day in another country and put your faith in hot rice and braised goat and the persistent aftertaste of a lost home. Gospels are made of less than this, but outside it is morning, a summer breeze burns down to the water, and the ocean begins. Hmm. Wow. Hmm. I love that line, gospels are made of less than this. Hmm. Thank you. I love, well, one, I love that tomato slice becoming an island. Mm-hmm. Um this is very much a like little gringo connection I'm making to this poem right now. Uh, <laughs> Go right ahead. It feels so American to say this right now. But like, I don't know, just that moment in the poem of just like forgetting where you are, right? Mm-hmm. Like you wake up and it's like, oh, you wake up in another country. And it's not that, at least what I can feel in that poem, it's not like the character or the speaker in that poem hasn't done that for so many days before, mm-hmm, right? right? But that constant sort of, oh, here I am. I've mm-hmm. just been experiencing that a lot with tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Just like waking up in the new hotel room and going like, what city am I in? Where's the bathroom? Uh, (laughs) what is this room shape like and you know sometimes even I can remember that living certain places you know waking up in Ann Arbor Madison every day and it always being a shock (laughs) yes yes no yeah I mean I I, because I lived in California since I moved Mm -hmm. I moved to the U.S. in 2000 and I Mm -hmm. moved straight to Los Angeles Mm -hmm. and then 2013 I took the job at Northwestern Mm -hmm. and the worst California was probably an easier transition well it's not even because if you've been to Lagos it looks like we adopted the American system which is kind of interesting educationally we're very British but lifestyle wise we're very American Mm -hmm. Um, largely mostly I think um because of landscape and heat, so mm-hmm. buildings work better that way. But also, mm-hmm. I think because of movies. Mm-hmm. So, like when I was growing up, black exploitation movies were literally taken without any irony. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and 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 linguistically, <laughs> things didn't make sense. So when a uh, when a black actor calls his girlfriend bitch, people 
assume it's a term of endearment. Oh, wow. And this is the beauty of what gets lost in translation. So, like, you'd be walking around uh, and a guy would be like, hey, Chris, have you met my new bish? <laughs> <laughs> Meaning my new girlfriend said with absolute joy and yeah. respect, you this know. my best jive turkey friend. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a way in which, there's a way in which sort of like, um, Sometimes when things move from a place to another place, mm. um, the contextuality, even of, of rage, gets mm-hmm. lost, mm. right? And then a, a, a person adopts something and then just simply, this is the power of language, which mm. is kind of what we do as language workers, mm. is you you can transform it mm-hmm. by juxtaposition into something completely different, which mm. is fascinating. So all the racism gets lost. Mm-hmm. And so... In those days in the 70s, you watch it and you think, oh, I, I'm coming to America where black people are affluent mm. and drive all these amazing cars and wear fur coats. Yes. <laughs> so, but also the, that whole thing about displacement and tour. You know, I always tell, I always tell uh, newer writers, like, they always want to go on book tour. I was like, no, you don't really want to go on book tour. You wake up on another coast three hours. Mm-hmm. Everyone you know is sleeping. Mm-hmm. And so, and then you do a gig and like for the time of the gig, you're God. Mm-hmm. And then at 9.30, they drop you off, right? Mm-hmm. And then you're sitting with a bucket of KFC. Just, in my case, when I, <laughs> one of my first readings was in, uh, when Graceland came out, was in Atlanta in the Margaret Mitchell house. Mm-hmm. And so I'm reading under this poster of Mommy. And then this guy asked me, the audience, what it's like now for black people to be able to write. And and I had no, I, had, I was not fast enough in processing now. these kinds of, now it would be a different thing. And then they put me in this beautiful bed and breakfast, but then I was <laughs> getting in late at night. And then the landlady said to me, oh, that tree outside the front of your room is amazing history to it. And stupidly, oh, no, do stupidly it. Do I asked the question. And so, <laughs> so oh, she's like, yeah. oh, yeah. And so I, I'm, st- I'm sitting sort of by the window all night staring out at this dark, big oak tree uh, that's the haunted. Tree. Yeah. The tree. So oh the, <laughs> the fact that she thinks that's like a fun factoid. <laughs> yeah, so it, right. was, it was to make me feel at home. She says, it's your people. Oh! You know, so it's sort of, and this is again the beauty. There's a thing too sometimes when you're a foreigner coming uh, into these kinds of contexts because you also don't realize how much privilege you're walking with, mm. right? So if you if you come from West Africa, where someone like I can sing my family's lineage back half a millennia, mm-hmm. mm. and so you walk into a context where people are trying to demean you, mm-hmm. and you you have no awareness mm-hmm. <laughs> that's mm. what's happening, but you don't realize it's it's sort of this extended privilege you're carrying and. And mm. it takes even it takes a while for you to realize that even your that your presence in a con- in a place like uh, mm. the U.S. and even say my ability to to be socially mobile to to do well is is based on the sacrifice mm. of people who look like me mm-hmm. but who aren't me. So in mm. other words, my position is made possible by the sacrifice of African Americans. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's a beautiful sort of way that you're always walking with a kind of double consciousness, especially, you know, <laughs> you've been to Nigeria. I just keep saying that because it's like shortcuts. You know, Nigerians think there's Nigerians and everyone else. Yes. And they don't just mean it. Oh, in, I could tell you that before I went to Lagos. I could tell you that from <laughs> Minnesota Nigerians. It's like if you're hanging with another Nigerian and a friend walks over and you say, oh, yeah, this is John. He's from Zimbabwe. The Nigerian will go, oh, like, oh, bless. <laughs> And so, like, growing up in Nigeria, the, with being biracial, my mother was a white English woman. Nigerians had classifications for whiteness. Uh. So they would always ask me, your mother is white? I would say yes. White, white, which was British. Uh, U.S., which was America. <laughs> this, and this is the order of white, respect. White, white, rankings. <laughs> yeah, rankings. So white, white, uh-huh. that meant England. Uh-huh. U.S. meant fun white. Then there was slumberger. 
because there was a, a construction company from Germany that was building all the freeways and everything. And so that meant European white who couldn't speak English. So that's the third ranking. And then the, f- the fourth ranking was Gofanti. And so Gofanti was a Sicilian company. So that meant white who get really dark in the sun. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and it will go all the way down through Lebanese. And so when you said uh, my mother's white, that would be the question. So like, it's sort of strange that whiteness, this is often like you encounter this, There's a dis- which is very dangerous to not only the psychology, uh, I think sometimes of West Africans in, in America, because when you, when you finally get hip to it, you aren't prepared for it, but you arrive with this sort of sense of superiority, mm. uh, almost looking at white people like, ah, you know, what is Mm. You're white and so what? Mm. Which white are you, by the way? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you are U.S. white. You're not even mm-hmm. white white. Yeah. <laughs> so, but so, I love that. I yeah, mean, yeah. you know, I was reading a poem today um, by Nate Marshall. Mm. And in the poem, he's even talking about, like, I get jealous of my immigrant friends. Right? Mm. As complicated and um, sometimes egotistical as mm-hmm. I found Nigerians when I was there. Lovely people, though. Uh, <laughs> very love, warm. Love very your, welcoming. Very, very warm, very welcoming. And you're right, Nigeria. I think it was beautiful, though, to see how highly Nigerians thought about themselves, mm-hmm. right? The blackest context I grew up in was my neighborhood, was my right. church, but even outside of those doors, right? It right. was still America. Mm-hmm. And so to be amongst Nigerians who felt so much pride in this black-built thing mm-hmm. was beautiful. And I think, you know, and not to, to bring it back to the poem just a yeah. little bit, but I, I think that's why... I also like that um, that last line in the ocean begins, right? Mm-hmm. Because it is like this thing of like, you always, and maybe that's a good way to think about privilege. White people, if you've been thinking that, uh, for a way to think about privilege, turn this up. Uh, because, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because there is a privilege in it, right, that you're talking about, but it is because you always start from that vantage point and move out, right? I think right. like the speaker in that poem, right, the ocean begins. It is not like the ocean doesn't reach all over the place, but it's like, no, every time I go to the ocean, it has to be that that thing. I have to start at the house. It has to be the breeze. Right. And it has to be the where I know the ocean. Where I, yeah, and that's yeah. where it begins. Yeah, but it's also this beautiful harkening back middle passage, mm-hmm. and and also sort of the nostalgia, so that you arrive and eventually you start to also feel this inexplicable loss, this mm-hmm. kind of weight of history mm-hmm. that is absent and you can't reach for anymore. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's sort of the the first moment I think, uh, it, it, and it's usually the Atlantic. It's like that first time you go to the Atlantic on this side, mm-hmm. right? You suddenly realize what has been lost. Mm. And that really all black people across the world are the same. They exist in this place of loss. Mm. And so the beauty, because there's always beauty to everything, is... I hate that. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Is that that you can rebuild an entire history Mm. uh, and reclaim things and reposition them in beautiful ways. And I know this because... The concept of a modern African is actually the invention of African-Americans following mm. the invention of Caribbean black people. Mm. So you, you sort of have those freedom movements that come here and Gavi and everyone. Mm-hmm. And future Nigerian leaders are studying in Howard and Spellman in the early part of the 20th century. And mm. so they model modern African middle class mm-hmm. on American yeah. black middle class. Wow. Mm. So, so in a sense, what is lost is what provides the power to reclaim from mm. colonialists mm. a wow, new wow. a new Nigeria. So that Nigerianness you oh, see wow. is a gift of African Americans. Oh, wow. Is blackness wow. a perpetual energy? <laughs> it's. I think it must be. Because now I'm thinking like socially, right? Like right. entertainment, right? right. Like. 
black folks come over here. Mm-hmm. We've retained so much from, mm-hmm. from the mm-hmm. motherland that like we still create our music in a mm-hmm. way that still feels like home. That shit goes over to Africa, right? Mm-hmm. And then creates a whole new sound, right? Yes. You know, like you hear, I mean, that's why I like looking at hip hop or especially a lot of Niger artists, you just hear that interplay of but like, even you know, what was that. ancestral, what was right. new or like filtered through American and back to Africa. It's mm-hmm. so beautiful. But even like high life and all that stuff, which is older, we're talking about the early, sort of the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. So you have all, all these African-American sailors coming to the docks of Accra. And teaching the kids who are helping offload the ships all these guitar licks mm-hmm. that are then are built into what becomes high life. Mm-hmm. And then high life begins the beginnings of Afrobeat. Mm-hmm. And then Felakuti comes here. Mm-hmm. And it's during the Panthers time and, and, and all of the Los Angeles encounters that Felakuti becomes radicalized mm-hmm. oh, wow. and goes back and becomes this kind of warrior. Mm-hmm. So again, there is only one blackness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Chris Abani, what's moving you? <laughs> well, I'm just gonna hard pivot before. No, I it's explode. a kind of. It's, <laughs> I'm just gonna. It's, it is a well. So, what, what's moving me is is sort of, it's sort of a, a retreat in a way into self. Mm. So for years, I've always had a very strong spiritual practice, mm-hmm. and I grew up very Catholic, being raised very Catholic, going to seminary to be a priest. Can you imagine? And oh, I was wow. rightfully kicked out twice, but twice they let you back in. They oh. let me back in. <laughs> more, more and you were like, there. nope, nope. <laughs> well, I didn't want to know, but they were like, no, you oh. gotta go because we have we have dogma, and you don't seem to understand that. Um, <laughs> but but I'm um, also kind of growing up simultaneously being trained by granduncles in the mm-hmm. traditional, not so much a religion because it's more like a worldview, a place mm. of being. And so about 10 years ago, I, I kind of became reinitiated into this stuff. And so what, what I've been exploring is the complexity of, and I, when I use the word African, I use it as I said, there's only one blackness. So I'm using it. And when I say one black, so you in England, in the England too, in the 80s and 90s, when I lived there, you were white or black. Mm-hmm. So when we had a black caucus, it was Chinese, it was Indian, it was black people. So black simply meant not white. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Wow. And so for most of us who kind of were in the London, London in those periods, we, t- we tend to see everyone of color as black. It's just mm. black. You're white or you're black. And it has to do with how old certain cultures are mm-hmm. still, right? Because capitalism has not destroyed certain kinds of fabrics, right? Mm. So English is very much a transactional language. It operates purely in like buy me, sell me, things like this. Whereas other languages still operate philosophically. So through this sort of worldview, I started to access the complexity of of African worldviews, of African thought, and how this starts to emerge in certain kinds of practices of art. And mm-hmm. So that's really what I've been sort of lost in, in a, for a long, long time, sort of how, how self is, is constructed through language, ling- linguistic practice, and how, depending how complex your language is, mm. It depends how complex your worldview gets. Mm. That also explains your capacity to make art or to mm-hmm. have a, a capacious imagination or to understand deeper things moving through life in a way. Um, and you still see that retained in African-Americans, that beautiful moment when Bernie Mac breaks mm-hmm. down the word motherfucker right? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and gives you all the different implications. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of, it's that idea of... Um, convergence and simultaneity. Mm-hmm. So the time in, in, in Nigerian thought is not linear, mm-hmm. and it's not circular either. Mm. It's an entanglement. Mm. And so even if you were to take a simple icon, like a like an altar figure, mm-hmm. it's usually a woman kneeling. Mm-hmm. And the position she's kneeling in is the position that traditionally women gave birth, mm. right? So so here she is, and the, 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 the 
uh, images are never of gods, they're of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the worshippers. So she's given birth and she's holding an offering and she has a child on her back. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of this idea where you are simultaneously appealing for something, mm-hmm. uh, receiving it at the mm-hmm. same time, uh, giving birth to something and that something is already grown on your mm-hmm. back. So mm-hmm. you're living in this entanglement. And so the only way to kind of make sense of it is to sort of like literally reach into the entanglement and snap out Mm. a line, which you can call a convergence. But as you're laying it out and trying to follow it, it simultaneously fragments again to a series of entanglements. Mm. And so it's trying to figure out how to express this artistically (laughs) without falling into the usual tropes that don't work like language poetry. Not Mm -hmm. that language poetry doesn't work, but it doesn't work in this context. Mm. And then you start to find people like Bob Kaufman in the 60s, an African-American poet, already trying to do this in Los Angeles. And so it's been my thing, is sort of finding ancestry in all these unexpected Expected places, mm. uh, but mostly in the visual arts, people like John Outerbridge in in, uh, in in Los Angeles, and then Noah Purifoy, who I knew briefly before he passed. And I remember going to; he's an assemblage artist, or he was, and he lived in in, in Joshua Tree. And I was lucky enough to visit, and I was looking at this piece of art, and then I touched it. Mm-hmm. And it was so rusty, it just fell apart. Mm. <laughs> and I said, "Oh my God, I've broken it." And he said, "No, no, no, you've completed it." He said, eventually, everything falls into art. Oh, wow. And so this ability <laughs> to, simultaneously, to simultaneously hold, see, English is really limited, yeah. to simultaneously hold simultaneity mm. and yet point to a convergence, an object, mm. is sort of what's been, and so I've been trying to figure out how to approach it through essays, through thinking, mm-hmm. through making, through ritual, through worship, through meditation, through poetry, through fiction, and, and I'm failing, but I'm having a great time. But the process of immersing oneself has meant that I've kind of find myself retracting more and more from the external world. And mm-hmm. it's sort of strange that you're all, I'm operating always from an entanglement. So mm-hmm. it gets hard sometimes to order a cup of coffee because you're, just, you're examining simultaneously seeing why you shouldn't be buying this coffee, but, mm-hmm. then, but then you have to arrive at a moment. And mm-hmm. so that's really where I've been lost. It's a weird kind of place to be. But it's sort of coming into a kind of awe of a heritage you come from. Mm. And then and then if you start to look at the ways Ifa and Orisha work, you start to see the Dao, and then you kind of see the indigenous Japanese Okinawan island practice, and you start to realize that all old cultures are the same. So I, I mm. uncovered photographs in an archive of old Nigerian fishing shrimping nets, mm-hmm. right? And then I uncovered, I found a book uh, called the, 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 I think it's Five Ways to Wrap an Egg. It's actually from just basic pictures from Japanese shopkeepers uh-huh. and how they how they present just in a small village, rural village. And so that if you bought six eggs, each egg will be wrapped and then tied in such a way that they're hanging down one egg tied to another egg. Tied. Oh, that's so beautiful! It's wow. amazing to see and sort of and you look at it and you realize the complexity of the wrapping, which mm-hmm. there's nothing like utility. Hmm. There is only beauty. Hmm. And so, and then starting to see these convergences around almost every old culture, uh, I've sort of been trying to figure out how that, how that could work, how, how, what that could mean and what that implies for me as a, as a, as a, not even so much a writer, because writing is one thing we do, right? But as a thinker, as a, Mm -hmm. as a person in the world. Mm -hmm. Can I ask more about the simultaneity Mm -hmm. when you talk about the kind of like theology, cosmology, Mm And mm-hmm. ideas about time, and also you you you're also talking about the connections between that and then how that's reflected in 
the language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, how how is that reflected? Is it is it reflected in when when you say like English is is um limited? Like is it? I guess yeah. How is it reflected I had a question in language? Yeah. That. Like if you could give us an example, right? Like, right. Let's say like what can you tell about like the Igbo people from their language and how that works. Right. right. There are two ways to think of this. One is mm-hmm. socially and one is philosophically. Yeah. And so growing up Igbo, the whole idea, even of raising a child, mm-hmm. is to raise them into an awareness of social contract, mm-hmm. absent of shame. So that there's no shame involved. We use referential language rather than direct language or what you can call inferential language. Okay. So just imagine you, you just ate a slice of pizza yeah, and you put it and you Did put that yesterday. and you put the plate down on the couch mm-hmm. and stand up to go to the kitchen. Mm-hmm. In Nigeria, your parent would say, Are you going to the kitchen? And the child will say, I'm not done eating. I'm coming back. And you might be like, What? It's not what they asked. Because <laughs> an American kid would be like, Yeah, I'm going to the kitchen. Do you want something? But what that child has just heard is, why are you going to the kitchen and leaving this plate here? Mm-hmm. Who's gonna pick it up? So even in that moment, what mm. seems like a standard transaction is not mm-hmm. a transaction at all. Mm. <laughs> so rather than say to you, you better get your damn plate and take it to the kitchen, mm-hmm. they give you the opportunity, this graceful moment, to to reconsider your position in everything. <laughs> and and so that happens largely, and, and then a lot of conversations happen in what you might call proverbial speech, right? which here now is reduced to idiomatic speech. Mm-hmm. In fact, the Yoruba call proverbs the, the horse language rides upon. And so, well, <laughs> proverbs exactly, are the horse that language rides. Upon. Yeah. So, because literally, one one you can say so much without. So it's never what's being said; it's always what's being inferred. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, um, in West Africa, a hunter uh, would be would go after a, le- a leopard, and then the leopard would see the hunter's dogs barking, and then the leopard would run, mm-hmm. and the dogs would keep barking. But really, the 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 hunter knows what the leopard is running from is not the dogs, but the gun he's holding. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense so far? Sure. Mm-hmm. So you could say, so as I'm, I'm in my in my fifties now, and then say a younger person said something to me, and then we're in a public place, and so I just go, well, you might think it's your barking, but the leopard knows it's not, and then this whole story unfolds. Mm-hmm. And so, but that same proverb works in so many different contexts. So mm-hmm. it's literally this idea that. Language is more like poetry, because if you think of a poem, the beauty of a poem is that it has the potential to be a virus, right? So it's a simulacrum. It's almost an automaton that once it leaves you, becomes something else. Mm -hmm. And if you do it well, it will just continue to replicate itself Mm -hmm. in multiple ways. So even if we're to take my favorite, not so favorite People in LA, we call the map people, and the yoga, you know, the namastes, you know, the angriest people on the planet. <laughs> um, they, they're all reading Hafiz. And there's a beautiful poem um, called um, This Sky. Mm-hmm. And it's simple. It goes, This sky is no place to lose your wings. So love, love, love. Mm-hmm. Sounds beautiful and new aging. But when you realize that it comes out of Sufism, and Sufism comes out of Zoroastrism, and then when Islam arrives, Islam abstracts everything. It can be no embodied God, no images of God, but the Sufis are very much about the beloved. God is the beloved. Mm-hmm. God is spoken about with passion, with almost a sexual zeal. And so they were being persecuted. So this is so literally, this is a call to action saying, in this time of persecution is no time to shirk away from love. Mm-hmm. Do not be what they want you to be. Be this. And yet 900 years later, it still is moving people in kinds of different ways. Mm-hmm. So, But English doesn't have that potential 
easily. Mm. Like you really have to break English mm -hmm. and work it in order for it to have this kind of massage because everything is a transaction. Pass mm. me the salt. Here's the salt. So for a start, where I come from, nobody would take salt from you directly because salt can, is an ability to capture energy. So they're not going to touch your energy. You have to put it down on the table, which breaks the contact before they will pick it up. So if you're holding out the salt, they would just say to you, nobody takes salt from the hand. Like they're literally going, what, what, what is wrong with you? <laughs> so that's just on a social level. Every time you're hearing something, there are 16 levels to it all mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. And so this allows people to parents to talk over their kids mm -hmm. And the kids don't know what they're saying, even though they're all they're speaking, speaking the, in same, the same language. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then when you start to look at it in sort of a, in, 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 in other kinds of ways, so when we're talking about philosophically, then it also means that what happens in, in oral cultures is that there's a lot of original thinking. We don't think so much here. We reproduce so much received narrative that we actually think is ours. Mm -hmm. And one of the hardest things when you're teaching anything is that people are doing things, you're like, dude, this guy just did that last week and before him and before him and before mm -hmm. him, you know? Uh, and then it's not even conscious, those references, not like you would find in, say, if you, if you were to read uh, uh, Dante's Inferno, it starts within the middle of my life. And then you read someone like Tadeusz Razovich writing in, in, in the 40s after the Second World War, uh, is unable, where language has failed them, he, he starts again in the middle of my life. And then you find David St. John in America writing during Vietnam about the Vietnam War, in this, in this morning in this light. So it's like you can just trace a direct line, knowledgeably drawn by these poets to each other in a mm -hmm. tradition. We, we don't do that so much here. So philosophically... The idea is that everything you're saying is about you thinking. Mm. So you, even when someone, even when you're disagreeing with someone, <laughs> you have to kind of disagree in a way that that is forcing you to consider your position. So linguistically, mm. you're trapped mm. in a dialectic all the time. You have to consider someone else's position. Mm. So nothing is ever the thing. It's always the thing it could or couldn't be. Um, and then just things people take for granted. Like um, there's a belief in Igbo culture that you have a seven life reincarnation cycle. You're given seven years to to evolve. And if you don't evolve, when you come back, you devolve. Or if you evolve, you then choose where to go next. And so people just say, Awama, Awamasa, all the time. My coming, my seven comings. Mm -hmm. And so you're in the middle of absolutely nothing. In the, like it still happens in, in an Apple store in the middle of Nigeria. You will say something that shocks someone. They'll be like, ah. Like they're working on a very complex 21st century technological problem in a genius bar, and yet they're still simultaneously have this old world view. Mm. And for them, there is no contradiction. Mm. Mm. Everything sort of blends together. So that level of complexity is hard to convey in English mm. because... English has become so disassociated. When even when we we jump on those moments, they become quaint. Like you call it pop, I call it soda. But if you really dig deep into that, you start to see a different kinds of worldview emerging all the time. Mm -hmm. Pop is literally because of the gas, a pop yeah. of so when it it's opens, the it's the action. So it's almost like, yay. No. And it's so, the bubbles. It's yeah, it's everything. the bubbles. And yet soda is sort of like, I like the mm. bubbles, but I'm going to be a little bit restrained about it. Mm. So even here, you can still excavate, you know, Gambasto Vico in the, in the ancient, in the, in the new science talks about this kind of archaeology of language. But it's because everything has been reduced and flattened out because of the complexities of capitalism and production. Mm -hmm. You can't have two factory workers having different ways of talking or talking mm -hmm. inferentially. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lunch would never end, mm -hmm. right? But my people didn't get that memo. We never go back after lunch. 
<laughs> but it's sort of it's sort of this idea, and so I'm always taken aback too when I see trends on Twitter and and trends going on in things and people using words carelessly like trauma and other things. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, have you thought about this word? Have you thought about not? Because I don't think you can use words. I'm like, certain words carry an immensity with them. Mm. Mm. So if you're trying to speak about an individual life through the lens of trauma, you cannot avoid sentimentality. Mm-hmm. And this is you see this happen in when Steven Spielberg is making Schindler's List, you know, little girl in red and everything else in black. It's sort of because no one person can experience trauma. You can experience pain and mm-hmm. difficulty and all kinds of things, but trauma is more a collective thing. Mm-hmm. The trauma of a civil war, the trauma of this. Just like you can't assassinate a guy on the street, you can only assassinate a president. Mm-hmm. Because when you assassinate John F. Kennedy, you're not assassinating the man, you're assassinating an office. Mm. Therefore, you're assassinating a nation. Mm. So there are all these ways in which it's starting to force me, and I'm not speaking for anyone else, to be very careful about language and what it means and how I'm using it and how the very choices I make are the very things that very often defeat the poems I'm trying to make. I'm wondering if that's particularly like American in some type of way. I don't know, maybe not. But is that a desire to be for English, especially American English, to like always remain contemporary? And also like, I think there's also like this thing that American English does where it's like, it wants to be contemporary and also to be like the final frontier of like where language has been, right? Like we don't want to evolve past this shit. We want everything to be my modern or my contemporary. You know, and I think that's even like how America's constructed, right? Like we like divorce ourselves from England. and Like we're like a new country, all up on our new shit. Fuck everything else that came before it. um, you know, same thing with like, you know, every time we have a war, every time we have a new president, we like are, we're, we're always new, right? It's always like mm-hmm. about the newness in America, even how our monuments are built, right? Like, I don't know, like, I didn't understand how like young America was until I went somewhere else. <laughs> you know, when I went to Europe for the first time, when I went to Africa for the first time, and I was just like, oh, this shit has been here for a while. And I live in a place that is interested in divorcing itself constantly from its past mm-hmm. and only living in its moment. And I wonder if that's like, you know, English, if I think about it, it's kind of a new language compared to everything else, right? Like, it's been around the shortest. It's like the bastardized one out of all the European languages, right? Am I tripping about that? Um, no, you're not tripping. It, it, it's, a, it's an assemblage, right? It's right. built out of other languages, Latin and Anglo-Saxon and Geet and German, mm-hmm. or early Germanic, Proto-Germanic stuff yeah. and, and, you know, uh, early, early yeah. France. I guess um, I'm asking, what is our relationship with our language? Yeah, here? well, I think that that's the thing. We're not asking that. This is mm-hmm. because in many ways America and English is very beautiful in that it allows multiplicity. So if mm-hmm. you take there's been a Turkish presence steadily in not small numbers in Germany, and if we just shrink it down even to Berlin mm-hmm. for near on a hundred years now, there are no Turkish words in German. Mm-hmm. The most you could oh, get is right. kebab, mm-hmm. right? But here we're always taking in phrases like from Armenian, from mm-hmm. Spanish, mm-hmm. From, because mm-hmm. because of the complexity mm-hmm. uh, of of what it means to try to live live together here. That's and true. then you also have the beauty of all the harbor languages, like certain kinds of African American mm-hmm. speech patterns, which were sh- literally a harbor. They were shelters for for African Americans to talk and not sort yeah. of, or even languages like patois or something. Uh, like right, that. patois yeah. and 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 so when you look at all of that, that that's that. America offers so much richness in that, mm-hmm. but I think this idea of newness mm-hmm. um, is part of it because the difficulty for I think Americans and in, in, in 
I'm being very careful here too, um, because I I don't want it to sound like, oh, here are these Americans, because I'm I'm essentially American. When I go back to England, everybody laughs at me. Mm-hmm. Like you sound so American. <laughs> and so but so but what I'm trying to su- su- suggest is that there is such a complex history of violence mm-hmm. over a comparatively short period mm-hmm. of time. We're talking about 250 years, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And that that violence has largely been directed from one group of people to every other group of people. Mm-hmm. And so to to acknowledge history is to have to account for that. Mm-hmm. And that is, then if we account for that, then people have to give up privilege. Mm-hmm. And this is where it starts to get sticky because mm-hmm. then we really have to start to talk in serious ways about redistribution of all kinds of things. But in other places, their violence is a little bit, bit more complex. It's not one group coming mm-hmm. to one place and for 250 years eradicating mm-hmm. whole civilizations and and, and 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 sort of taking people from another place and mm-hmm. enslaving them. Yeah, there's two shifts and struggles. Yeah, right, yeah. and so that I think is the difficulty. Mm-hmm. The language can work, but to make it work, you're asking people to to agree to something that they're not quite ready to agree to, mm-hmm. which is really that uh, we have to account. We have to account for history. There's no getting away from it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that the idea that some languages have like conquering tendencies built into them is like a, wi- a kind of a wild thing, and that other other languages are are from the ground up built to to be more relational like considering mm-hmm. of the of the relational i don't know it's like a it seems to explain a lot and also and also yeah i mean i think that also i i hear your point about like the continual evolution of american english and the the continual ways that it becomes enlivened and enriched and mm-hmm. um you know that people are injecting it with resonances mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. um i don't know i think about like twitter english mm-hmm. even you know as mm-hmm. like as one that is because of the form, continually becoming more advanced in its ability to resonate using the smallest bit of language, mm-hmm. you know, um, possible. But the, the question is, what is it resonating? A different worldview or the same worldview? Sure. Yeah. Because that's really the, the power, the, 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 the worldviews are formed in language. Mm-hmm. And I would give you, so for a lot of cultures, the worldview is that there is this, and that at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that this and that always produces a third. And then once you have a third, then you have the option of a fourth. Mm-hmm. Whereas it seems that sort of languages that are locked in imperialism and often locked in extreme capitalism are this or that languages. Mm-hmm. So the worldview is that it's this or that. It can't be both. You have to be a complete victim or a complete oppressor. There's no middle ground. Uh, oh, we love a two-party system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so, so that idea... Uh, so when I was when I was teaching out in Riverside, uh, I'm teaching kids who are largely of color. English is a second, third language, and their mistakes were amazing. Like I, I had a kid who, who was a recent uh, immigrant from from Vietnam, and he got into trouble in every other class because of his difficulty with tenses and things like this. But actually, when I read his work, I thought this is really amazing. Like you're literally, if you turn this away from embarrassment into sort of saying, I am reforming this language, you break, you're going to break through into sort of the way Hajin tries to do this when, when he comes uh, from China. And, and so this is... Well, also because in Vietnamese, the the subjunctive clause doesn't mm-hmm. exist. Right. And like, or I think, or is it the conditional? 
One of those. One of those yeah. doesn't exist. And so, yeah, I mean, to, to have to, inv- I mean, for like for my to have parents. have a Vietnamese feeling in English. Then, right, right, right. Sense, well, yeah. I mean, for my parents, like they, I, a lot of Koreans have a, have difficulty yes. between A and V. Yes. Because like mm. there's no articles. Yeah. Oh. There's no A or V. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh and, then, and then countables is weird. Mm-hmm. So is it like, do I put sugar in my coffee or do I put sugars in my coffee? Mm-hmm. Like what, mm. because like there are, you know, um, but like the A and V, so like, um, uh, she got a master's degree. She got the master's degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah. like the the ones where it, it gets a, like a little bit trickier, and, right. and and they ask like, why is it V and not A? Right. And I can't explain exactly right. to them. Yeah. <laughs> Ibo mm. does that too. Ibo and Yoruba have no personal pronouns. No right. gen- No gendered pronouns. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So like yeah. you see, you run Same into Korean, older yeah. older Nigerian people. They will keep calling you he mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. or she. They don't yeah. care because there's no such thing. It's it's right. they. Uh, because everyone's seen as a collective of this this idea that you're part, you know. So it's a very different way of seeing things. Um, so the idea is that these kids would, would often join the army, and then sometimes wouldn't come back, and we would carry on as though nothing had happened. Hmm. And so I was looking for ways to sort of bring a different conversation. So for a very short amount of time, I started to run sort of a brown bag thing, lunchtime potluck thing, where I would invite vets into the into the classroom, hmm. but usually vets who had parts missing. Hmm. Even how I'm talking about it is difficult. So I began to notice that everyone kind of over 30 always asks them about the loss. How does it feel to lose a leg? How does it feel? But the young people were asking different questions, like how many legs do you have? Do you have a different one for running, a different one for... So suddenly it seemed like the physicality of the body was not as important as the consciousness animating it and the possibilities it offered. So body Mm. is vehicle rather than as personhood. Hmm. And I started to try to make these links to sort of the internet and this idea that perhaps technology was creating this collapsible world where uh, things were a little bit less about because my generation everything is about the physical body your body is the wrong body for this space your body did something wrong let's shoot your body your mm. body is having sex with a body we don't approve of mm. and so I thought here's a possibility that perhaps a new generation are coming along that are going to force us into a worldview where we have to reconsider because if your body is your last stand, is your place of making home, and it doesn't matter anymore, then that means really worldviews can shift. But the difficulty, I think, is that when you're young and coming through that, there are not enough people working in an intellectual field to help shape an ideology for them. Mm. And so by the time they transition into a certain age and they had to get a job, and then that that beauty gets lost. And it's a bit like, you know, the whole thing that it's the baby boomers who, who wanted all the change in the 60s who are now the people who won't shift an inch on anything, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of, I, I, I'm beginning to see that happen again. And so like for that brief moment, I had all this excitement, but it's, it's amazing. I mean, so I'm really interested in sort of this idea that the, a poem is a body. It's, a, it's literally mm-hmm. a, a, a robotic consciousness. You launch it into the world and it has the capacity to mutate mm-hmm. all the time. And the, the better you shape it, the more its capacity to mutate. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the worse it's shaped, the less it's kept, it keeps falling flat in certain places. Mm-hmm. And so I've come to the point now where I think there's good art and bad art. Simply that good art is art that delivers what it says it's going to deliver. And bad art is art that doesn't deliver what it says it's going to deliver. Mm. So we can almost say in a, a, a sort of a Terminator movie is really good art because it just tells you, look, up front, we're going to shoot things. Things are going to melt. It's not going to make sense, <laughs> but you're going to have a good time. And that's what they deliver. And then indie movies, you sort of you feel like you're paying for, to sit on someone's therapy. 
Right. Mm. So, so, I like and, that. <laughs> I love other people's therapy. It's not mine. <laughs> but that's not what you were promised. Sometimes. Sometimes. No. I, I mean, what is it like in any movie? Um, did you see Horse Girl? I did not see Horse Girl. Horse Girl is weird. Horse Girl does not deliver on its promise. No? No. But It's anyway. not about a horse girl? I mean, it is, but it, I think it del- it says there will there's a mystery and it will be a satisfying ending to this mystery. And mm. it's not... I mean, yeah, okay, I don't know, okay, so the good art, bad art thing, that I still have to mull over that thought for a little bit, but I do, I, I guess I'm still mulling with these different bodies that we can have, right, mm-hmm. even, like, thinking mm-hmm. about, like, how, mm-hmm. you know, young folks, and I do think, I've been thinking about this a lot, about what it means for there to be an entire generation that mm-hmm. for, for even me and Franny's generation, for, like, either half or most of mm-hmm. our lives, mm-hmm. we have had a digital self that yeah, we yes. have built, right, yes. and so, like, yes. you know, there is this body that we have had control about how to augment or like even yes. you talk about Twitter for Andy right like yes. there are whole people who like are like celebrities in this digital space right. of Twitter that we don't know what they look like right. that they have like an anime avatar right, right. and so you have yeah. constructed this this being this language this whole personality that who fucking knows what it is right, right. and like that and still I don't know. The crazy thing is that is, is how we're becoming machines and androids amongst ourselves as people, right? Is that that is also somebody's humanity. Right. That digital right, space that right, they have augmented, right? right? Like we are kind of like living within the poems that we write a little bit, you know? Like. Which I love. Mm-hmm. And, and and so this is what I think. And I'm just hoping that, that we keep pushing it. Yeah. Right. And, and but pushing it in a more thoughtful way, in a more considered way, yeah. in, in a more engaged way. Uh, because there are things that just happen. Because of a zeitgeist, but mm-hmm. then to survive a zeitgeist, mm-hmm. there has to be a lot of thought and consideration. Sure. I mean, I think know? we have to start thinking about it deeper, right? That right. social media isn't this passe thing, right? But like we have right. now invited a like second digital earth right. into our daily right. lives. Right. And what and what does it mean for us who like when we're talking about people spend, you know, right several hours a day probably on average like in this other space in a digital body what does that mean for us as humans to now have this second soul the second body to pay attention and it also can lead to great things right like I think that's why the younger folks are like how many legs do you have (laughs) but also but it's also also like it's not that new it's just that what we have now is a larger capacity from it right Mm. because how is that different from my mom used to have people over for tea and coffee and they would just gossip about Mm. is literally they were twittering and and (laughs) they were doing the same kinds of but it was limited to a very small neighborhood mm-hmm. and then only existed the access only happened within the bodies of the people sitting yeah. there and suddenly this isn't the case and like you can have the most profound relationship with someone mm-hmm. halfway across the world you've never like you said you mm-hmm. have no sense of who they really are mm-hmm. and so it, for me I think it's it, when I see the work that's emerging now mm-hmm. like f- even in terms of novels and stuff it just seems not to be exploiting these possibilities mm-hmm. in, in terms of how expansive it, it seems to always be it seems almost like it's retreating back into things that like just like why did you even write this like mm-hmm. there's nothing really here mm-hmm. it's almost like people are thinking that they don't have things to talk about or write about whereas I think they're poised almost at that moment like Shakespeare was poised at, like you're inventing language literally mm-hmm. now you can mm-hmm. do anything mm-hmm. Um, and people are just kind of like beating the same sorts of drums and keeping it within within themselves, within their own hmm. space, if that hmm. makes any sense. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah. I suppose so. I mean, I think that there's a lot, also a lot of like pre- pretty wild, inventive. I don't know. Are we talking about poetry? Like, they, talk about they, everything, really, yeah. not just poetry. I mean, I'm talking about you know, just like television and uh, sure. no, and and everything that sort of we we sort of we can consider art form, sculpture, everything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
when you think when you think I mean like what Giacometti was making and when he was making it when you look at contemporary sculpture you kind of think well it's kind of still a variation on these sorts of themes mm. and and that's why I think I hesitate with my own work so much because I'm mm. there's a way in which I'm afraid to produce the same thing I just mm. produced yeah there's so many books in the world but mm-hmm. so few good books mm-hmm. when I was in in, in uh, the PhD in Percival Everett was my professor and we were working on the novel Graceland we did this almost one year one-on-one sort of like uh, process of working on it and finally I had a draft and I said to him I think this is a shit draft Mm -hmm. this is a shit book and he took me to Barnes and Noble and walked me down the fiction aisle and said just pick books at random and I did and then he took me upstairs and he bought me a cup of coffee and he said I'm going away when I come back in half an hour I want to see three piles shit pile good pile and important pile so when he came back, I had a towering pile, like six books and like three books. And he pointed to the big pile and I said, what's this? And I said, it's the shit pile. And he said, then why are you worried? Your book is shit. It's bound to be published. <laughs> so he said to me, what you're doing is you're being dishonest. Mm. What you're really asking is, can I make something good or important? Mm. And so if you are asking that, then that means you have to bring the right apparatus to that question. So first of all, you have to ask the right question and then try to figure out what apparatus works for that question mm-hmm. rather than just sort of devolving into almost like a sort of like self-neurosis kind of that is not productive. And mm-hmm. you know what I'm trying to say? So so it's really, uh, for me, I'm not sort of, I think this is where I am. This is sort of where I'm locked in now, trying to figure out what can be possible. Mm-hmm. Can I ask how that changed your just production? Because we were just even looking at the bibliography earlier, and it's just like, you know, like, you published a crap ton, and then, like, even in, like, you know, 2010 had, like, three poetry books, three right? Books? And then And then now it's been, like, six years since yeah. the last book, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, is is it just that you are so... I mean, I hope it's not too sore of a, sore of a spot to ask. No, no. It, are you just, like, so enraptured in the questions right now that the production is just a little bit slower? I mean, what... Yeah. Well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's No, it's a good question. There are no off-limit questions. Yeah. It's a brilliant yeah, question. Yeah, I just... Yeah, how was your... I guess it was <laughs> well, really a question about pacing. How right. has your pace changed over time? Uh, well, yeah. several things have happened... Um, uh, one is that I, I got to you know I think you get to a certain point in your life and uh, you start to ask real questions like how is my being on this planet has what actual impact has it had on other people's mm-hmm. lives and you know I don't I don't have a, I'm not, I can't be a philanthropist <laughs> I don't have the money for it so I started to look at sort of like just going back over 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 the tradition I come out of which is an African literary tradition and started to ask myself where are the gaps mm-hmm. and what is my generation's job in terms of living archives mm-hmm. and, and and accounting for things and so we've been doing a lot of work on the African poetry book fund trying mm-hmm. to push all these amazing poets who who won't go, not only go to stand yeah. alone but i think we're 65 chapbooks in now yeah you just wow. picked up uh one of my like one of my dear young ones fatima yes. kamari just yes. picked up her book for it yeah. thank you for that no, you're welcome. <laughs> and, and then what's starting to happen is that even as a curator you stand back and you see that there are conversations happening mm-hmm. that hadn't happened in african poetry before mm. for several reasons one is again this idea of how most of African literature post, I would say, 1960 of independence, or, and even just slightly before that, has sort of been an aggressive pushing of a nationalistic identities mm. that are about repelling whiteness. Mm-hmm. And that space needed to be fought for, but what's now beautiful is that you find a space where that should have happened immediately, which is a kind of more modernist thinking. So the, the younger poets now are sort of reading each other, and you can see this conversation happening in the books we're publishing. Mm. Uh, so that that takes up 
uh, quite a bit of time as well. And then I, I, I just took a stint and sort of started taking a lot of commissioned screenplays from big screen people, which is, is soul killing, but you know, pays the mortgage. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, but then I, I, it's really this crux question. Like I, I look back at some of my work and I just think, cause I, you know, I have, I have colleagues who are very good at producing and sometimes mm-hmm. they're good books, mm-hmm. but I don't want to write good books. I want to write a book that if that book was the only thing I ever wrote, it would mean something. Mm. And, and so that's part of in the struggle. But then the other thing is like, you know, two and a half years ago, my elder brother who, who is, a, I don't know how to explain, you know, we were, we were not just brothers passed away and, and I mm. spent 10 months uh, by his bedside watching him die. Mm. That actually took me longer to come back out of into the creative space and, and even my mother's death um, mm. because hers was more rapid, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, that's been difficult. And then being a poet, of course, I, in fact, the poems I'm reading or I read from is, is, is from a collection that I've been working on or that's around this relationship, around this man and what, what does that even mean to lose a part of yourself in this profound way. So that's also, it's harder than than I thought it was going to be. Mm. Um, so I think the whole slowing down process is partly these questions and asking, do I do, does anyone need another Chris Abani poem? Mm. And if it's going to be there, can it be a book that, that begins to resonate mm. outside of what's trending, outside of even an intellectual position, outside mm. of a statement, but just this really deeply human thing mm. that, what I've encountered in certain books like, you know, The Great Fires or or or, or even um, When Your Well Runs Dry, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, our brother's uh, book. So, so a book that, you know, it's like I want to be able to write a book that, uh, like a Baldwin book, a book you just always, any, mm. or like a Bob Marley song, anytime you crack it open, it's it's modern, it's mm. relevant, mm. it's speaking to a deep human thing and not, being clever or me being talented or me being trying to figure out what will win an award. And and mm. I think that's, that's harder when you also, it work comes easy to you because mm. then you, the tendency is to just do what you've always done. And so this is, this is a struggle I have. Mm-hmm. It's a real difficult, which is why I loved, you know, all of your books, but, but, you know, there's a transitional book, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that really blew open things for mm-hmm. me. And, and, and you know how I feel about that book. And it's because that's precisely what it does. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of seminal book. Now you're, you're gifted in a sense that, and, and you too, like everything you do seems to still be within that vein. But I, I, I think I, I want to be sure what I'm doing. So I've, I've mm-hmm. uh, um, and as I've, as I've grown deeper, I've grown to be more Chris. Mm-hmm. So, Writer is one thing I do. Yeah, I'm also an uncle. Mm. Uh, you know, when my brother dies, his kids become my responsibility. I've sort of so there are all these ways in which I sort of the thing that seemed to drive me no longer doesn't drive me anymore. It's sort mm. of this deep humanness, mm-hmm. mm. and so that's what's caused a lot of the slowing down. But I I, I don't think the world cares that much. There's so many books to read. <laughs> There are a lot of books. Yeah, there are a lot of books. You've written a lot of those you books. You've written a lot of those books, yeah. So it's consider true. this my penance, <laughs> my atonement. Mm. Well, it also seems that if, you know, you talked about the interest in simultaneity and and resonance and the imminence of language, that's a, a kind of poem that requires more time and space around it to engage with and on a reader's level, and therefore I can imagine it Take, and it, you know, requires a lot more time and space on, on from the writerly end as well. 
Or am I am I off? No, no. You're, you're, well, you're not off because, in the sense that, even for me to wrap my head around mm-hmm. that stuff, probably take the rest of my life because mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of like trying to figure out what quantum mechanics is and yeah. all of this stuff. <laughs> human beings, human thought is beautiful and complex. No, but I think for me, an idea is useless if it cannot live in an everyday human body. Mm. So even when I teach, I teach theory a lot. I teach Derrida, I teach all these things. And 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 if, if I'm teaching something to a kid for whom English is maybe a second or third language, it's sort of like almost a theoretical complex that, uh, that sort of exists outside of what may be native to this person. Mm. If I cannot convey the complexity in an everyday way in which it can live in their body and they can utilize it then then it's just i'm i'm not only a terrible teacher but i'm i'm just what is the point of that what is mm-hmm. the point of a theory that cannot be understood or that you cannot translate to a 10 year old mm-hmm. then you don't know the theory yourself mm-hmm. and this has always been my approach to 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 my own study to my own understanding mm-hmm. and i'm not saying this for anyone else who teaches or how they teach but so for me the, the the idea is not to write poems that are bewildering. Mm. They have to just be poems. Mm. And you it's a bit like if you took Beloved. You can read it on a plane, and it's a terrifying ghost story, like more terrifying than anything Stephen King can write. But then you start to go deeper, and you find it's like 27 different layers, and there are mm. layers even that most people don't know because she's even accounting for religious practices like Orisha, Santaria, like mm. Ifa, things within this context that you... And so this is really... What I'm more interested in, I want to write, I want to write something like Hafiz. It, mm. On the surface, it can live for 900 years and become whatever people want it to become, mm. but it's driven by this deep web underneath it mm. of complexity that is me trying to render the beauty of a culture that I come from, mm. if that makes any sense. No. Yeah. That's actually what makes it difficult. To render complexity in a confusing way is not difficult at all, but right. but to to write it in such a way that someone can hear it as simply mm-hmm. as a touch mm-hmm. then, yeah. then that becomes yeah. that becomes the struggle for me to mm-hmm. drive complexity towards a um, accessible place yes yeah. a beautiful elegance you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. when you think about the whole culture that produces just the outlay of a sushi plate which becomes mm-hmm. the menu of your iPhone which becomes uh, how this elegance is not simple it just appears to be right. so it, mm-hmm. it's an ease it allows people ease and but repeated visitation creates the complexity right mm. i mean that I mean, yeah it makes me think of that altar figure that you mm-hmm. that you described exactly. earlier mm. yeah you say that for your student to be able to utilize that theory mm. do you think that theory should be useful i think anything you theorize if it cannot live in a human body then it's a useless theory so like every economic theory yeah. you can find it being argued in a market in shanghai mm-hmm. by someone who never went to school yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and if 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 as an intellectual you cannot understand that there's no separation in this and that mm-hmm. you cannot take it from where you think you are to that place, mm. then, then, then I don't understand the point of mm. it. Well, I guess mm. by, by useful, by my question, I mean that like it seems like people argue about the um, what poetry should be for. You know, like the utility of poetry, and the, the yeah. people push against that. Like poetry, sh- you know, we need to like save it from the imperative to be a useful tool for anything. And so, how mm. how what you're saying? Well, how can, I disagree with that. But how? But also like. Poetry is probably the only art form whose only subject is actually, the only subject of poetry is language. Mm -hmm. It's not about anything but language. 
What do you mean by that? <laughs> Even a poetry about death, it's trying to understand death. It's And the only way to understand death is through language. So you're finding a language to understand death. It's always about language. Mm. Because I don't think, and if I go back to sort of the ways language is talked about within the cultural context that I emerge from, language does not exist for communication. Language comes about to be able to figure out what is self and what is not self. Mm. For consciousness right, which doesn't operate, it operates below the level of language, which is why even to talk about it in psychoanalysis, you have someone like Lacan inventing sort of the symbolic order, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It is simply to be able to say, star me. Mm -hmm. And when it says star me, it's not to lay territory, it's to understand me. Mm -hmm. What is me in relationship to star? So language is simply coming to self. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it is only when we start to think of imperial machinations that language starts to enter into these even conversations about utility, not utility, because then language is about propaganda or not propaganda, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when you see pharaohs like not enough sort of scarabs of other pharaohs and overwriting their own and all these kinds of mm-hmm. things that you which was the worst thing for an Egyptian pharaoh when they strike you from all the monuments to strike you is to make you non-existent mm-hmm. so language is essentially the only way you know that you exist mm-hmm. and it's the only tool it's the most technologically advanced thing ever made by humans because it's the only way to know anything and to be able to create a binary mm. that allows you to have a dialogic conversation within itself. Mm. So it's in, it's inescapable that it also will have, because just because you're exploring self doesn't mean you can't make a wheel. Mm-hmm. Right? So, but if the primary drive is only to make a wheel, then you start to get into these conversations. But then also, if the only primary drive of a poem is to aggrandize yourself or to complain about something that's happened to you or to make you the center of something, mm-hmm. then you're equally failing. Because, mm. And more importantly, you're failing yourself, not poetry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Because you're not doing service to the complexity that you are. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm trying to get yeah. at? So for mm-hmm. me, everything, this is why I'm trapped. Not trapped, but <laughs> sort of what's creating the the time lags. Trying to figure out what is it exactly I'm even trying to, I can't even articulate properly what I'm trying yeah. to say. It's so clear when I think about it. But then that's also, I know if you write poetry, you know what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. That Everything you write never quite matches. No. No. <laughs> it's a pale It's always three drafts away yeah. from what's in the head. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't know that the the usefulness of ideas of utility, and I think that's sometimes an American thing, because if you are a teenager about to take your life and you read a poem, no matter what the poem is, and it gives you a sense that there is still wonder in the world, then it has utility, whatever the intent of the writer or not writer was. Mm-hmm. And so if you go, the way to think, I think about this is to go back to being a kid and, and sort of wandering into a library and the day I discovered Baldwin and thought, oh my God, what a radiant, you know, like later I found the language for it. But what I realized about Baldwin is that Baldwin is essentially saying in everything he writes that there's only one aberration in the world and that's the absence of love, mm-hmm. right? And he's very clear, it's not sentimental love. It's sort of this drive towards life to, mm-hmm. to allow life to flourish, mm-hmm. right? And so and so then it sort of starts to see how he talks about white self-loathing within racism and so on. But it's laid out for you, but it's never laid out in a judgmental way. Mm-hmm. It's laid out in a way that invites people in. So I think that for me, that's that's that's. I'm still struggling to understand what language is. I'm not yet at the point of arguing about its utility uh, or what it should or shouldn't be. You know, mm. poetry should be whatever you want it to be, man. And you can do anything and call it poetry. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I don't mean that in like anyone has the right. But have you watched some people cook? Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I'm using the word poetry here for sort of like a distilled beauty. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, because I play the saxophone. And I, I play uh, alto, tenor, and soprano. Mm -hmm. If you make a mistake in an alto saxophone or even a tenor, better even in a tenor, no one hears it because it's like... Vroom, 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 vroom. Make a mistake in, in a soprano saxophone. And the screech alone is you can't hide it. Mm -hmm. right? It's like mm -hmm. a trumpet. Mm -hmm. That's what I think of as poetry. To me, it's like the finest art form of all the all everything to do with literature and language i hold poetry in a different kind of reverence and so like i use it when i see something amazing like when i see beautiful design i'm like that's poetry when i see mm -hmm. a great bridge i'm like that's poetry mm -hmm. uh, i was just watching denez now with the tea and, and sort of the beautiful wake is when i saw uh, i didn't realize there was a second glove but i was watching the tea in there and then i was just waiting for how he's gonna move all those pieces of tea and not end up and and it, the transition was so beautiful and he was doing it while we were talking <laughs> and telling jokes right so there's a, there, that's what I'm talking about like like an elegance that's really all I'm for me that's all it really is it's, it's like an elegance mm. um and I'm like a bull in a china shop, so I'm trying to relearn elegance. Mm. <laughs> and so I'm not speaking about any other person's work mm -hmm. or even about a generational work. I'm just talking about my limitations, mm. Chris Abani's limitations, because that's all I can. I have the, the right to speak about. Hmm. I know that's a good button, but can I ask one more question? <laughs> I'm sorry, this is such no. a good conversation. Yeah, um, I've had the opportunity to be in a classroom with you. And I think like one thing I can say that I think every student that's ever worked with you that I've met can say whether they work with you for an hour or for years is that you are uh, one of the great master teachers that many of us get to encounter. Um, and it, it's happening right now. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and one thing that I also really loved about your teaching is that you have um, a mathematics and a science to what you think mm -hmm. about what, the work and about language that feels like America would like us to think that there's no math in the spiritual, but there's hella math in the spiritual. It's and, all math. So it's all math. It's all math. <laughs> and I guess I'm wondering, like, how did the presence of that mathematics and that science enter your teaching philosophy? And where does it pop up in the rest of your life? Are you always sort of drawing the graph and making the line and trying to figure out the <laughs> equation? I mean, I guess you're talking about doing that right now with all these threads and these continuums. Yeah. Well, you know, the the... One of the exceptional privileges I had was growing up in rural Nigeria, rural mm -hmm. Igbo land, and being left alone with old people, mm -hmm. like people who, when I was 10, were 70 or 80, and who would sometimes ask me to explain things to them, mm -hmm. and uh, or I would get to watch them interact with things like just this, you know, just, so the way they think is, because I told you, they have no education, no formal education mm -hmm. to draw on. The formal education is sort of this inferential way of, mm -hmm. of coming into a culture and being allowed to find. So it's like the culture has all these limitations and expectations, but the, the trick that the culture does is by these maneuvers of linguistic gymnastics allows for you to improvise. Mm -hmm. So you remain an individual within a kind of collective. Mm -hmm. Um and it's a difficult thing to understand. It's more like an experiential thing. How something as simple as a cola nut is a model of the entire galaxy. And so you start to see things differently. You start to see Milky Ways in everything. Mm. <laughs> but I mean, let me just give you also like this beautiful way in which a person, my, 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 my dad's father, who used to be a houseboy to the priests and spoke very little English. I mean, so bad that he would get into arguments with my mother over tea. Because hmm. in 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 Nigeria, uh, tea really means hot chocolate. Oh, yeah. Because tea, if they want tea, tea, they ask for Lipton. Mm -hmm. 
And if they want coffee, they ask by the brand Nescaf mm-hmm. or Bongo. So when he says tea, and my, bro- my mother used to mess with him all the time, she would make him a cup of proper tea. And he would just look at it and say, isn't English your language? Why don't you understand? <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you understand what tea is? But So I remember one time my mother had you know gone away and come back from England, and then Velcro shoes were all in the rage. So I'm talking oh, wow. about 78s, right? <laughs> yes, they were very new. And she gave him a pair of Velcro shoes, and he loved these shoes. So one day he's sitting there, and he's playing with the Velcro. And I asked him, well, why are you playing with this Velcro? And he says, ah, this Velcro can teach you anything. He said, what? He's like, anything can teach you anything. I said, like what? He said, watch this. He takes off his shoe, and he grabs an empty beer bottle, and he tries to stick the Velcro to it. Mm. And he says, is this sticking? I said, no. So then you can know. If you want to have an easy life, you be like bottle. Don't be like Velcro. <laughs> like, don't get stuck. Just don't let anything stick, stick to, to you. you. <laughs> don't engage with shit you don't want to engage with. Wow, he made a whole proverb <laughs> out of an improvised. Just like, just like that. And this is just like, and so you have to imagine you're interacting with these people for hours at a day, for years. Mm-hmm. I feel like you can't not become a poet. Well, you can also you cannot, but also like you can't. Nothing is just anything now. Mm-hmm. Everything is the has a potentiality. Everything has a sense. Yes, everything is sentient and and sentient in a way that allows this complexity, this simultaneity and convergence. Because it's really he's having a highly complex conversation now mm-hmm. about self, about how to be in the world. But he's also a shoe, and he's a, like a kid. Mm-hmm. So what is play to him also becomes a way in which he's coming to to remind himself of life as he's aging and, and falling out. Uh, but this is also a man who, when he's dying and he's taken into, he used to keep his whole old adobe hut and wouldn't move into the cement house for a long time. But finally, my, my uncle and my father moved him into this house. He was He would cry, like literally cry to go back to this hut. And so finally I asked him why. He says, I cannot die in this house. And I asked him why, and he said, everything I have, I borrowed from the, the earth. I have to return everything. I don't want to owe anyone. And so I, and so he's like, from his body to the building he erected, before he dies, it has to be knocked down so he can see that he's returned everything he borrowed so he's not in debt. Mm. So you grow up around people like this. And if I, if I don't veer into poetry, as you said, or into complexity, <laughs> then literally there's no hope for me. Right? So so I, I kind of take it for granted because what this inferential thing allows you to do is to intercede editorially sometimes mm-hmm. into people's work mm-hmm. without ever trying to change them and never imposing your worldview. Mm-hmm. So in other words, what you're doing is saying, here are processes. Mm-hmm. And if you want to do what you want to do, you have to stop thinking or wasting time imagining that you're eventually going to arrive at the answer. Whereas if you employ, if you just employ these processes, these will allow you to reach here without giving up the things you think you're defending. Mm. So it's never about me. Mm-hmm. And if you notice in workshop, I ask endless questions. Yeah, I, and I always ask permission. Mm-hmm. Because I, I make the cut before I come to the workshop. I also have a copy where I don't have a cut on it. Mm. And you remember I always say, would you like me to show you what I did with a poem? And then yeah. I read it. Mm-hmm. So what it allows someone to do, because you know, most of the time no one's ever read your work back to you. Right. Mm. It's very true. And to, to see someone read your work back, but to read it with reverence mm-hmm. and to read it having having brought a certain amount of respect to you. Mm-hmm. In other words, I treat people I work with like my peers. I don't talk down to anyone, uh, but also I don't 
I try not to be harmful. So what I will do is give you a set of processes. And again, if remember, if you if people push against it, I I pull all the way back because I have I'm not invested in it in that way. I don't need to be right. I don't mm-hmm. need to be wrong. I just I just know that all art is process. Product is a thing that happens if we're lucky. Mm-hmm. And so if we invest more time in process, right, then you start to see work because then you just have a set of tools. It's like trying to grate cheese every time with your fingernails when there's a mm-hmm. cheese grater. Why why do that? Just mm-hmm. use a cheese grater, get the cheese grated, and then decide. Uh, I want to do something different, so I'm going to get a different kind of grate. But at least now you know what a grater is, and you don't have to sort of sit there because you think there's some integrity or some nobility in, in like, or that there's some importance to mm-hmm. you rather than to the work you're making. That's the thing. I, I don't take myself seriously. I take the work seriously. Mm. I don't care what you think about me. And the, people don't like my work. There are lots of people who don't like my work at all. But they can never say it's shitty work. They can never say this is bad. Mm. Oh, that's right. Right? So you don't have to like it. And I think we spend too much time worrying about who likes it. Like, none of us would change our fashion because somebody does. Well, maybe we're, when we're middle school, but now, it's like, it's like if I walked to a workshop and said, I don't like your shirt. So what? You don't maybe care. I wore shirt. Well, so why would you care if I say I don't like your poem? What I need to mm-hmm. show you is a process. Mm-hmm. And and then you can decide to use it or not. Mm-hmm. Does that does that kind it of... Does. The privilege of, of, of being allowed, because <laughs> teaching is a difficult word for me. I think of it more like pointing out things. Mm. But to be in that position is that you're constantly being challenged by new people mm-hmm. who have beautiful ideas. And sometimes they're not even aware of how amazing they are. That's one of the beautiful things about it. Because I'm just saying, like, you're holding on to a cup of coffee. But look, you have a whole coffee machine here. Mm-hmm. Like, just just let go. Mm-hmm. Let's let go of this cup. Look, look. You can make thousands of these cups mm-hmm. because you have the product. And so and so it's, it's because I have awe. Mm-hmm. And so because I have awe for work, it doesn't matter whose work I'm reading, I mm. approach it with the expectation of awe. Mm. And and oftentimes if you if you approach it that way, you will always find things that awe you. And sometimes mm. my students are shocked because I will sometimes call a writer from class mm-hmm. that they know, that I know they like, and read the thing to them. And then they say, and I say, Tell me what you think of this line and I'll read it. And they can hear on speakerphone the other the writer going, Damn, that's a good line. Did you write that? And it's like, no, my undergraduates from that mm. and, and just in that moment you can see the person kind of go okay and being taken seriously here mm. and they step up that's the beautiful thing about these young people once yeah. they once they realize you're not mocking them that you're not playing with them that, mm-hmm. that you don't care about them in a weird way it's just sincerely you you want to open up a system for them that they can mm-hmm. use repeatedly through life because i even teach them how to go through other workshops mm-hmm. i'm like don't pay attention to this pay attention to this because that goes in a toolbox this is just chatter mm-hmm. and so that's really my whole thing is to make the, the every workshop i teach the last workshop somebody needs to attend mm-hmm. We are back and we're ready for the recreational portion of this year podcast. So our first game of the day is called either Speed Bag or Fast Punch. Or I was thinking also maybe it could be like Lovers or Haters. Lovers or Haters. Or something. You know what I mean? Like War and Peace because it's like you pick the best or the worst. We'll talk about it. I think all we know is that this thing has no title. So basically what we're going to do. So no matter what happens, we're going to give you 10 topics. Okay. Okay. 10 topics. And your choice is that you are either going to tell us the best of, they'll be looking. It can either be, it'll be like Pizza toppings, and it will also be like, you know, like 
Emily Dickinson Holmes. It won't be that specific. Um, <laughs> but um, we're gonna. You can either tell us the best of that thing or the worst of that thing. So best pizza topping, worst pizza topping. Would you like to be a lover or a hater today? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Haters sound way more interesting. Okay, okay let's do haters. All right, time. <laughs> cool. Franny, you want to get the first one going? Yeah. Time starts now. Worst place to write. Coffee shop. Mm. Worst punctuation. Comma. Worst um, poetic form. Sonnet. Worst. Oh, whoa, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, all right. Well, let's talk about it. I'm offended. <laughs> yeah. um, worst <laughs> food to cook. I don't know. Pizza. Okay. Uh, worst uh, sci-fi or fantasy series. Pass. Oh, no. I, I, I can't think of anything. Okay, okay, okay. All, right, all right, all right. The worst stanza length. Uh, a long one. Oh. <laughs> okay. Wor- worst writing advice you ever got. Write what you know. Oh. Mm. Worst title of a poem that you've written. Untitled. <laughs> <laughs> um, worst um, vegetable. Broccoli. Whoa. Uh, wow. So many offensive things said during this game. Um, okay, final. Worst way to waste time. Reading bad shit. Mm. Nice. Nice. Perfect. Yeah, That's great. Sonnets and broccoli? Come on, Chris. Sonnets? Yeah. Why sonnets? Because is, is there, are they too overused? Has the sonnet made too big of a comeback? People... Well, I just noticed that a lot of times what happens in, in America is we're good with mechanical form, but we don't understand the spirit of the form. Mm. A sonnet is about a volta. It's about nothing else. Mm-hmm. And most people don't, they don't know that. They waste their time rhyming things and mm. we're all trying to be experimental and not doing... See, them. I feel the same way, but just the opposite feeling. Like, I love the sonnet, but that's because I do think that... If you're not doing the Volta, what is the sonnet about? I guess, yeah, I agree. But, but then it's just like, no, how many people? I mean, even like some of our best, they, yeah, they don't do this. And I'm, 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 I'm broccoli, just you know, it's it's so wow. good. It's like eating a tree. No, it's not. Have you ever had it in the in the oven what with about, a little yeah, like charred? Yeah. It's, like, it's, just like, it's like eating a charred tree. <laughs> Nick, I love charred trees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I love Charger. And I love 14 Lives. You know, the funny thing is I love I love sci-fi. Like, I, I, and the cheesier and more mm-hmm. terrible it is, the mm-hmm. more I love it. Mm-hmm. So like even Sharktopia or yeah. Sharknado. So I couldn't think of anything. Because, like, well, because you love I Sharknado. Lo- I, lo- I love all of it. <laughs> like from really good to really shitty. It was sci-fi. I, I'll go with it. Wow. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's right. real. That's all real. All right, well... Um, well, too bad we can't play the second game because we have to kick Chris Abani off the show. <laughs> talk shit about sonnets and, and broccoli. That's the cornerstone of my career. <laughs> Who am I without the sonnet? Still a bad bitch. Um, all right, cool. Let's play the second game. Uh, okay, so we're going to play a game called This Versus That, where mm. we put two things in two different corners, and uh, you tell us which would win in a fight. Usually, we uh, pick two sort of concepts that have come up. Uh, and have been sort of important to the conversation that preceded this, but we went so many different places that where we have landed for this, this versus that, is to uh, give you sonnets versus broccoli. <laughs> so it's like Voltas versus vitamin K. Yeah. <laughs> Which would win in a fight? Also, uh-huh. what do we mean by this question? <laughs> Okay, I'll try and answer all of those. I just kind of see like Shakespeare 
like it may be like with the tag in from Terrence Hayes, like fighting a, a like I don't know, like some weird nigga in a broccoli suit. Like, I very much like it. <laughs> yeah, I'm into it. Yeah. <laughs> Sonnet would win. Okay. Why? Well, the first the first thing is. Um, <laughs> There's there's nothing you can do to broccoli to improve it. Not even what? cheese, bro. <laughs> nothing you Not can do. Not even a good cheese sauce. Nothing yes. you can do. Have you ever had it chopped up in a pool of cheddar and they call it soup? No. Yeah, what about I the don't. soup? I've, I've tried all that. Oh, no, my God. No, no, no. no. So a sonnet would win for multiple reasons. <laughs> 14 of them. 14 at least. <laughs> let's take, just let's take one little reason, number one, is the rhyme scheme. Mm. So like you go up in a, it's like going into a ring with Muhammad Ali, mm-hmm. right? So the rhyme scheme is like the tap, tap, the tap, tap. And then he opens up and you think you're going to hit him and then he's worked you down to about the eighth line and then he slams you with a vault and that's mm. the end of the fight. <laughs> and the last two lines are him like being like, whoa. Wow. That's Kinshasa fight, number one. The second thing that would make a sonnet win. <laughs> Wait, where, what is broccoli doing during all this uh, stuff? Broccoli is either drowning in its own cheese or creating <laughs> obnoxious gases and drowning itself. Wow. <laughs> or being chopped down in a forest uh, or being, as you said, scorched. <laughs> so, wow. So, uh, second reason that a sonnet would win uh, is that what we think of a traditional sonnet is really a constellation over time. The sonnet really was a call and response situation that are used by troubadours. Mm. So essentially, his heart is always in jazz, and therefore, a sonnet can always improvise. No matter what you bring, like I told you, broccoli, you can drown it in cheese, you can scorch it, you can chop it up. What else can you do to it? You can fricassee it, you can, yeah. you can put it in a sandwich with Steam. peanut butter and jelly but it's not you can steam it nothing will help it but and but the sonnet will always improvise you can even improvise to like some susan wheeler has that great sonnet of alternate starts where every line is a, an alternate start to the same line about a cockroach mm. and she knocks it out the park that's the second reason it would win three the sonnet is mobile it's not only mobile because troubadours used to travel with it it's been mobile through time and it refuses to obey so shakespeare tried to tie it down and petrach tried it and it just won't do what it does and terence hayes comes and fucks it all up, right? So, yeah, Sonnet has all kinds of mobility. Broccoli is kind of like... Well, broccoli, it's not, it's, it's, it's you not eat even it, a, it's you not chew even it, a, and it comes out completely <laughs> different than how it went in. Yeah, but... <laughs> broccoli is transformation. It drops off some nutrients in your body. Yeah. <laughs> I love how this is the this person that, that has gotten you the most heated. I am, <laughs> yo. Broccoli is fucking delicious and nutritious, goddammit. <laughs> all right? When I was growing up hungry, my mama didn't put sonnets on the table, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> Broccoli. <laughs> oh my god! Came yeah. over, nobody ever came up to me and said, "Eat your line breaks." You know? <laughs> hey, hey, I thought we were playing this versus that, not Chris versus nah, the nah, 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 nah. It's this Sorry. versus this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, all right. So let's say bro- broccoli, because it's, it's, uh-huh. it's, it's roughage, right? So it's roughage. It's rough around the edges, so it, it could probably take a few punches. Yeah. So it, it, might, it might be a draw. You How about we go with a draw? You ever got like a thing of broccoli and it's mostly them like thick little like stalk things? Like them things, it's tough to eat that. That's my like, point yeah. exactly. Why would you do that Because Because I like it now. Because I like it now. Because now I get it on pizza. There, there are better ways to self-flagellate, man. All right, all right, all right. Y'all heard it here first. Sonnets win. I guess I don't even like sonnets no more yeah, you do I love sonnets I but love sonnets I know, I know. Broccoli's a close second though. okay cool 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 but they're both at the bottom we just heard from this list everything's a lie now everything's entangled and a lie <laughs> uh, 
uh, Mr. Vani, doctor. Are you a doctor? Doctor Vani? I'm a doctor. You are a doctor, yeah. Doctor but, but, you know, yeah. I, you know so I freaked up my neighbor once because, you know, I moved, I didn't live in the shishi part of Evanston. Mm-hmm. I'm the only black dude for a while. Mm-hmm. And then my neighbor said to me, are you, are you, she's like, oh, you live here now? I was like, yeah. She's like, are you, are you a doctor? And I said, of a sort. <laughs> <laughs> now they don't come by my house nah. they're like nah he's <laughs> African and he a doctor we, that is witch, witch. <laughs> my nephew calls me King Winch King Winch <laughs> yes. ooh King Winch that's a good novel yeah, actually really good. anyway I'm just yeah. Christmas no I'm taking that one <laughs> King Witch coming out from Penguin Teen next fall yeah. <laughs> <laughs> love it uh, Chris Abadi thank you so much for thank coming you, uh, on thank the show you. would you read us one more poem sure let's close this out White egret, epigraph. The whole world is filled with the love of God, Kwame Dawes. How easily the profound fritters away in words. A stream in a forest and a boy fishing, heart aflame, head hush, tasting the world, lick and pant. The holy scripture is animal, not book. I should know I have smoked the very soul of God, psalm burning between fingers on an African afternoon. And how is it that death can open up an alleluia from the core of a man? And the simple wisdom of my brother, what you taste with abandon, even God cannot take from you. All my life, men with blackened insides have fought to keep the flutter of a white egret in my chest from bursting into flight and glory. Wow, masterclass indeed with Yo, Chris Avani. I love all our episodes, but I know there are like always some that I know I'm gonna like re-listen to with like a pen in hand and yeah. be like, okay, like what was said? Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> like in the moment, oh my God. Yeah, luckily you can rewind and uh, take notes yeah. if you weren't already taking notes. And also I feel like I never knew what language was, you know? <laughs> Honestly, still don't. Yeah. Might have and more also, questions than answers. I knew that English was suspect. No, English has been suspect. Yeah. Is there anything that English fails to do for you? Like any word? Uh, so many that, things. Like, <laughs> me, so many things. What has it done for you lately? <laughs> um, no, but like what, like is there, is there like any word or like feeling um, that you know that English has no space for? Oh, yeah. What's untranslatable? You know, I think that it's, um, for me, it's not necessarily like a word. I mean, there are like words in Korean that mm-hmm. are definitely untranslatable mm-hmm. in English. Um, but because Korean is a language without accents mm-hmm. on certain syllables, like mm-hmm. no word has particular accents uh, on or off of it. Mm-hmm. And so intonation is so important mm. to the Korean sentence. The like particular w- way that your voice rises or falls mm-hmm. in a Korean sentence completely changes. It the makes meaning. you sing. Yeah. And oh, I just wow. love that about Korean. It doesn't exactly have uh, a parallel in English. Hmm. What about you? Are there things that are... What has English not done for you lately? Uh, <laughs> one, it's my only damn language because of colonization and slavery. Uh, but no, like... Same I, old, same old. Same old, same old. <laughs> I think what... Um, but you know, like, you know, black people have like, you know, invented many Englishes within English because, mm. you know, they look at us like they don't know what we're talking about. Um, and I think one thing that, like, is my favorite, it's actually a tattoo of mine. I love the word nim, like... 
I went to Kyle and M's house. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing about that is because like it is about like this large mass of people, but it doesn't mean that it's in particular, right? I don't think there's anything else I know about that in English where I was like, I was with like Kevin, who is either the person that I know you know or the per- most important person, but like the Nim is also named and loved, right? Mm-hmm. And like I'm actually like saying that in a way where like you know everybody who was there. When I say Kevin and them, you know it was Kevin and Ronnie and Ashley and Shanika and all of them. Like they, I don't need to say that because mm-hmm. I was with Nim. <laughs> 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 you know who the fuck Nim is, you know? <laughs> and it it's, const- like, it's like an at all. Yeah, it love. is. A, yeah, it's an at all, and I know you know who all yeah, is, yeah, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. it's just, you know, it's just not anybody. It's oh, Nim, nigga. <laughs> and I don't think, I don't know any other, like, thing within, like, the King's English that does that. Mm. The the particular in particularness of yeah. Nim. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Shout out to all of the things that um, the languages of our colonizers don't have room for. Yeah. Um, that we are continuing to make room for. Yeah, shout out. Yeah. Um, speaking of shout outs, who uh, who do you want to thank for this episode today, Denise? Okay, um, since we're thinking about language and what it does, I'm going to thank the Dark Noise Collective today. Oh. Yeah, for telling me many moons ago and reminding me every time they see me that I say directions wrong. Like, I can't say Western. I say Western. Yeah, and do. I can't say Northern. Northern. I see it. I have to force it. Northern. I have to say Northern. So shout out to the Dark Noise Collective for letting me know that English is a lie because I've never spoken. (laughs) I'm going to shout out a podcast that I love, which is... Cross promotion. Yeah, I know. Uh, is Talk to Me in Korean mm. is like a podcast and like a whole array of other like services and um, things to like help people learn Korean and it's like really accessible. And so this is not an ad. It's <laughs> just um, it's just me liking a thing. So thanks, Talk to Me in Korean, for helping me speak my mother tongue a Amen. little bit better. Yeah. Amen. Um, we also want to thank the Poetry Foundation and Post Loudness. We want to thank Idami Noriega and Itzel Blancas. Thank you, as always, to our producer, Daniel Kisslinger. And thank you to you for continuing to listen to Versus Podcast. Yeah. Um, if you are on social media, follow us on Twitter at Podcast. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts or any other place where you can subscribe, like, rate, and review, then please do those things if you like what you're listening to. If you don't like it, tell your friend and only your friend, but then tell us them to listen to us too make their own opinion <laughs> all right um we are gonna get on out of here y'all thank you for joining us we will be back in two weeks with another interview with your new favorite poet y'all have a good one y'all peace goodbye